0: Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by Jeremiah Coogan. Sorry, Dr. Jeremiah Coogan. How are you, Jeremiah? Doing all right. How are you, Ian? I'm doing well. Jeremiah, tell us about yourself.
1: I recently finished my PhD at the University of Notre Dame, and this fall I'll be getting a postdoc at the University of Oxford. Most of my work focuses on early Christian gospel writing and gospel rewriting, so Ian and I have lots of things to talk about
0: yes and we're going to have jeremiah back to talk about our shared favorite topics but not today today we are discussing james reeves christian expansion and christian ideology this is an essay that was published in the spread of christianity in the first four centuries edited by w.v harris and reeves is sort of addressing the question of the quote-unquote triumph of christianity How did Christianity come to basically take over the Roman world? Previous studies, Reeves says, have focused on how Christianity expanded numerically or quantitatively. That is, how did enough people get converted? And he says, sure, that's interesting, but that doesn't actually explain how Christianity comes to dominate the Roman world, because because the hold Christianity co- eventually comes to have over the Roman world isn't just number of converts, but it's a new ideology of religion. It's a new conceptual and social system, a new way of understanding what religion is. That is what allows Christianity to, quote-unquote, triumph.
1: Yeah, so in making this argument... Reeves is arguing in particular against the work of two other scholars, Ramsey McMullen and Rodney Stark. Now, Ramsey McMullen, in his book Christianizing the Roman Empire, had argued that really the way that Christianity grew was because of mass instances of conversion. Lots of people all at once become Christ followers and become adherents to this new movement.
0: McMullen really loves these stories of miracles and charismatic teachers that get crowds together, and as a community, they join the Christian faith.
1: Stark's proposal also has to do with the ways that social groups come over to Christianity. Sort of, it's, Again, it's a sociological model for how Christianity grows. But for Stark, it's about the ways that Christianity develops de- these durable social structures that enable continued spread. But coming from a study of new religious movements in the 19th and 20th centuries, Stark argues that actually mass conversions too fast. Christianity grows by having durable social structures that enable it to spread fast enough, but also not so fast that it implodes upon itself.
0: Stark shows that Christianity's expansion, the rate of expansion, actually isn't particularly alarming. It is roughly the same rate at which Mormonism is expanding in the United States of America. But both of these studies are focusing on numbers.
1: And it might be helpful to say that there's been a sort of a whole cottage industry of subsequent studies trying to figure out exactly how we might measure Christian number, how fast Christianity grew. So McMullen and Stark have sort of set the ball rolling on a larger conversation about how we think about Christian number. Reeves, however, wants to take the conversation in a different direction and stop thinking about number as such and about the kind of thing that Christianity was to begin with.
0: So Reeves is going to argue that there are three features, three interrelated features of Christian ideology and sort of social and conceptual schemes that that distinguish Christianity from traditional Roman religion and allowed it to take over in the way that it did. And these are exclusivity, homogeneity, and totalization. So we're going to spend the rest of this episode talking through these three things. And these set it apart from traditional Roman religion, which Reeves says is non-exclusive, open-ended, limitless. And we'll see what he means by these contrasts in a second.
1: It's important though that for Reeves, the idea that Roman religion is non-exclusive, open-ended and limitless, doesn't mean that people are free from all social constraints. There are constraints based on one's social position and ethnicity, the amount of wealth or whether one is enslaved or free, that all influence the kinds of religious choices one can make. But still there are different sort of religious choices available in traditional Roman religion than the ones that Christianity and this novel ideology of religion that Christianity offers makes available to people.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the very notion, or at least what it means to make choice uh, in the terms of religion, is one of the things that Reeves is going to say makes Christianity different from traditional Roman religion. One of the things that's kind of interesting about Reeves is it's actually a sort of vindication of a classic study by Arthur Darby knock Nock's study, titled Just Conversion, is the study of this phenomenon that everyone loves to hate and for good reason there's plenty of things wrong with knock
1: knock characterizes this distinction between religious models as a difference between religion based on adhesion where you just sort of join in you add another practice onto an existing set of options versus on the other hand conversion where there's a marked transition of one's whole allegiance to a new system a new way of seeing the world and These terms from Nock's work come to play a big role in how Reeves thinks about the difference between Christianity and other Roman religion.
0: And although scholars have pointed out that there may be some Protestant bias and some anti-Catholic bias uh, in this dichotomy of Nock, Reeves is ironically going to come along and say that actually... There is something to be said for the way in which Christianity is concerned to generate a holistic worldview that the varieties of practices that we categorize as Roman religion aren't interested in. And actually, that difference may matter.
1: Ian, would now be a good time to tell people what we did yesterday?
0: (laughs) Yes. Reeves
1: has published some other work that also engages Knox's distinction between adhesion and conversion. And in fact, when Ian and I talked about doing this episode... I thought we were going to do that article first.
0: Jeremiah and I started recording yesterday and got about five minutes in when we realized we had read different articles.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which only goes to show that Reeves's work is actually addressing, Reeves' whole body of work is actually addressing some of these interlocking issues. And in fact, we got all the way to recording because Reeves is actually engaged in a broader project of thinking through these questions from different angles.
0: Right. We, we created a joint outline for different articles, which is pretty funny. The first of these three features of Christian ideology that's really distinctive from traditional Roman religion, according to Reeves, is its exclusivity.
1: So what that means is that Christians have only one God and will only worship one God.
0: So we probably don't need to tell our listeners that most Roman religion is polytheistic and Romans have no problem worshiping multiple gods. So Plutarch is a really interesting example, because not only is he a priest of Apollo, but he's also been initiated into the rites of Isis, the Isiac rites, and probably part of the Eleusinian Mysteries, and of course, doesn't disbelieve in other gods. So we have a polytheist who is participating as a member of major, what we might anachronistically call, religious traditions.
1: And beyond that, Plutarch also is a Platonic philosopher who believes that... Plato's philosophy offers a pathway to divine truth. And it seems that, in addition, he's a participant in the imperial cult, not least because he's the priest of Apollo at a shrine that also includes a shrine for the imperial cult.
0: And we're slipping over a bit into Reeve's discussion of totalizing or totalization. Um, but one of the interesting things is these different parts of Plutarch's worldview, for lack of a better thing, are interchangeable. Not every priest of Apollo was a Platonic philosopher. Not every initiate into the rites of uh, Isis was a member of the imperial cult. In Roman traditional religion, you could worship and participate in multiple schools of philosophy and worship multiple gods, depending on what you needed fixed that day.
1: And this seems to be a long-standing idea. In in Euripides Hippolytus, in the written in the fifth century BCE. There's something of a quarrel between Aphrodite and Artemis. As Aphrodite acknowledges, she doesn't mind that Hippolytus, the protagonist of this play, worships Artemis. Rather, she's just offended that Hippolytus gives all of his devotion to Artemis and doesn't also give her divine honor. The problem isn't that even the gods are grumpy about other gods being worshiped. Rather, gods get annoyed when they're neglected.
0: Now, what makes Christians really different, of course, is they have one god. And they are very interested in telling people that other gods aren't gods. In fact, they're interested in saying that other gods are demons. So, this Tertullian tells us is the main source of complaints about Christians in cities. I think this probably underlied a lot of what we call Christian persecution in antiquity. Is this sort of fear that Christians are neglecting worshipping the gods that keep our city safe. But the, the point, anyways, is from a traditional Roman perspective, Christians are atheists. Because for some inexplicable reason, the worship of their god precludes them for participating in the other forms of worship that everyone else was part of.
1: The best modern analogy for this idea that early Christians are atheists might be that Christians are seen by their neighbors as, as it were, terrorists. They are people who are actively working against the health and safety of their neighbors by offending the gods who keep the community safe or who, when neglected, punish the community with various sorts of natural disaster. What do you call a person who brings down natural disaster and divine wrath on a community? Well, terrorism isn't really a bad analogy here. Christians aren't the only people who think that there is one God or one supreme divine being. This is in fact an idea that appears in a number of philosophical systems in the Roman world, especially Platonic and Stoic philosophical systems will argue that there is one supreme divine principle or divine being. What makes Christians weird isn't that they are monotheists in that sense. Rather, it's that Christians adamantly refuse to participate in other expressions of religion and indeed they, they criticize other expressions of religion as demonic and as not just unnecessary but positively false and detrimental to human well-being
0: now christianity doesn't come out of nowhere obviously we have uh, made a big point in talking about christianity as a kind of second temple judaism in this podcast And this feature of exclusive worship of one God is something that Christians very much inherited from Judaism. Jews in the first century are monotheists. We have uh, the wisdom of Solomon polemicizing against polytheists. They have multiple or different ways of talking about what the pagan deities are. Um, Some people think they're just human folly, just human error. Other people think they're angels of a sort. We even have Alexandrian traditions that recognize them as other manifestations of the one true God, or a particularly fun tradition in which Moses actually sets up the traditional re- religions of Rome and Egypt as something to sort of let these non-Jewish people bide their time.
1: And in later rabbinic tradition, we also see the idea that God created the sun and the moon and the planets and stars as the appropriate things for people to worship. Rather than making for themselves statues or graven images, God actually gave people heavenly bodies that they can worship if they're not going to worship the true God.
0: Jeremiah and I both have Paula Fredrickson and some other stellar scholars in the back of our heads complicating the sense in which Christians and Jews were monotheists. But Reeves' point is right. The thing that Christians and Jews certainly are is exclusive they think that proper worship is due only to their god and that precludes them from participating in their local shrine of asclepius in their local imperial cult and this exclusivity point that reeves is making is what we're trying to drive home
1: absolutely one of the differences though between christianity and judaism is that judaism seems in the early roman period to also have fuzzy boundaries in a different way. Jews should only worship God, um, is the God of the Jewish scriptures. But on the other hand, we do know, both from the Book of Acts and from other Second Temple literature, as well as from some synagogue inscriptions in Rome and in Asia Minor, that there was this other category of people who manifest what Reeves calls adhesion. People who participated in certain ways in the synagogue as what we know as God-fearers or Theosubuminoi. People who aren't all in in Judaism, but who are also in a certain sense affiliated with the synagogue who maybe attend services, may participate in some Jewish practices, but don't see exclusive worship of the Jewish God as a central part of their religious identity.
0: Christians, on the other hand, would not be chill with people coming to church services and on the side going to worship at the local Mithraeum. Their polemic against pagan deities goes right back to our first author in the entire Christian tradition, Paul, who condemns other deities as demonic forces.
1: So what are the consequences of this idea of exclusivity that Reeves identifies as so central to Christian ideology? First of all, As Reeves suggests, this dichotomy imposes a coherence on everything else. Only in the sort of dualistic worldview where you have God on the one hand and demonic evil on the other, does it then become possible to create a dichotomy where you have Christianity on one side and a single thing that is paganism on the other. And this dualism has implications for thinking and for doing, for thought and for practice. Various sorts of practices and behaviors that are not typical of or acknowledged by Christian communities become identified as demonic. Either a set of ideas, a set of practices are Christian, or they're part of this lumped together thing that is paganism, that is demonic.
0: Right, so this actually is the creation of paganism as a category. If you had walked into a Roman household in the first century, their worship of Lares and Penantes, the household deities, would have been radically distinct f- for them from the imperial cult they participate in, which would be radically distinct from the Eleusinian mysteries they participate in, which would they wouldn't think has anything to do with the fact that they visit an Asclepium to get medical attention from the, the priests of Asclepius they wouldn't have viewed these as part of a coherent worldview of paganism. It is Christianity saying we can't do all of these things because they're run by demons and we worship the one true God that actually sort of creates paganism as this sort of mirror image that brings together lots of different practices, traditional practices of first century Romans and says they're all part of the same category.
1: This idea influences paganism too, though. Such that several centuries later, the emperor known as Julian the Apostate in the mid-fourth century is able to think of Hellenism as a religious system in opposition to Christianity or what he calls the religion of the Galileans. But this Christian creation of paganism then doesn't just impact how Christians think, but in the long run, it also impacts the thing that Christians call paganism.
0: Absolutely. So... reeves second category is homogeneity and that is a sort of drive for uniformity of practice and belief now if you've listened to our walter bauer episode or our marcion episode you'll know that there is of course a variety a diversity of practice within ancient christianity reeves isn't denying that he isn't arguing that all christianity is homogeneous He is saying that the exclusivity of Christianity actually produces a drive for homogeneity. If there is, in fact, only one God and one proper way to worship him, then you need to get everybody worshiping that one God in the proper way, which is, of course, your way. And so we see in the varieties of Christian practice, everyone is striving, or at least almost everyone, is striving to get people to worship God the way that they want God to be worshiped.
1: Christians were, again, somewhat odd. Diversity of practice was normal in traditional Roman religion. Even for the same deity, say Apollo or Zeus, each region or city or temple would have their own distinct practices, often quite similar, but sometimes also quite different, for worshiping that divine being. There wasn't any concerted effort to homogenize. Even if some cults, for example, the cult of Mithras, had broad international similarities homogeneity was not a norm or even an aspiration diversity of belief was assumed and insofar as there was any homogeneity that was a side effect of other factors rather than itself being
0: a goal right from one temple of apollo to another you might find very different kinds of sacrifices being offered, you might discover very different visual representations of Apollo, you might find different rituals being practiced, and this wouldn't have been an issue to worshipers of Apollo. They, they considered it natural and good that people in different places um, had different ways of reverencing even the very same deity. So while Reeves is saying that this is a distinctive of Christianity, he does point out that there is a parallel in Roman philosophy. We do see Platonists who are trying to sort of homogenize and standardize the way the philosophy of Plato is being taught. They're looking back to one and the same founder who they have beliefs about his doctrine and are saying, no, actually, Platonism should look like this. And interestingly, Reeves notes that the rhetoric of heresy that Christianity would come to adopt, that is, heresy is novel, heresy arrives from personal vanity, and that her- heresies are diverse while the truth is homogenous and unified, that this rhetoric may actually be borrowed from Platonic polemic. This is the way Platonists criticize other Platonists.
1: In light of this, it's worth noting that a number of early Christians, including figures like Justin and Clement, will describe themselves as philosophers, as teachers of philosophy, and borrow this sort of sociology and ideology of the philosophical school from Roman period Platonism as a way of trying to articulate to broader audiences the kind of distinctiveness and exclusivity and homogeneity that they believe that Christianity has. This isn't true of all Christians, but it is one of the ways that Christians try to communicate the nature of Christian belief and practice to their contemporaries in the Roman period. What, one other point here to add is that Platonism isn't the only place where we see these attempts at homogeneity and standardization. We also see something quite similar in Roman period Stoicism, where, again, Stoics are trying to sort through and standardize Stoic beliefs, again, going back to the teachings of esteemed founders, especially Chrysippus, Cleanthes, and Zeno, as figures who provide a set of doctrines that should be homogeneous and standardized because they're representative of Truth and of the nature of the way the world works.
0: And like exclusivity, Christianity's strive for homogeneity may also be borrowed from Second Temple Judaism. The most explicit evidence we have of this is actually the various sects of Judaism in the first century do all evince this sort of desire to homogenize religious practice. The most explicit evidence, of course, comes from Qumran, where we have all these polemics against the way the temple cult is currently being practiced, and polemics against the Pharisees, the lover of smooth things, they call them. And they condemn their co-religionists as sons of darkness. These These are contemporaries of Paul who are saying the way other people worship the one true god is wrong and the way we do it is right and this example doesn't come from reeves but i think probably jubilees which which we discussed in our hindi naiman episode evinces the same sort of thing we have here put on the lips of moses a sort of polemic against other contemporary jews calendrical practices
1: to sum that up briefly this doesn't mean that in second temple judaism there was in fact homogeneity rather the polemics that are in evidence from the texts at Qumran and from our other evidence for Second Temple Judaism, show that there was an aspiration of homogeneity, an idea that uniformity of practice and belief was a positive good. It was the way that things should be.
0: Right. That's what sets apart Christianity and Judaism here and philosophical schools from traditional Roman religion. Is this aspiration or drive for homogeneity?
1: Now, early Christianity takes this up another notch. Already in Second Temple Judaism, we see this idea that there's a conflict between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And yes, that language is very much gendered male in the second temple texts, but Christians also ascribe these distinctions between proper belief and practice to this sort of cosmic dualism. One is either participating on God's team or one is aligned with demonic forces that are opposed to God. If one is not following the gospel that Paul preaches, He tells the churches in Galatia that they are following a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all.
0: And this seems to be a feature of Christian literature as far back as you can go. And so we have Paul, like Jeremiah just quoted. We have Revelation, which I think is probably the most plausible uh, example of a non-Pauline Christian text in the Bible. And we have in the opening letters of that polemics against the practices of different kinds of Christians. Second John, of course, says not even to greet other Christians with a different Christology.
1: This idea of homogeneity is not exclusive to those, those authors who end up in the Christian New Testament or to those who would be termed in modern scholarship orthodox or proto-orthodox. In fact, it seems to be a feature of Christianity across its varieties in the first couple of centuries. Marcion, Montanists the people who composed the texts found at Nal Hamadi, the testimony of truth, all have their own polemics against people who believe differently and practice differently. They all have the idea that their way of doing Christianity, their way of worshipping the Christian God is right, and everyone else
0: is wrong. So as I noted, homogeneity is an outgrowth of exclusivity if you believe there's one god and one way to worship that god you're probably going to be uncomfortable with other ways other people are worshiping your god and so we see growing out of exclusivity this strive to police the practice of your co-religionists
1: the third major heading under which reeves analyzes the distinctiveness of early Christian ideology is something he calls totalization. That is, early Christians don't just think that you do particular things in the Christian assembly, that certain practices that we might classify as religion or as worship are mandated. In fact, Christianity, much like uh, certain sorts of Greek or Roman philosophy, is a way of life. Christianity as a way of life unifies Ethics, cult, the practices that we often think of as being religion, myth, explanations about how the world came to be and why it is the way that it is, philosophy, and indeed everything else. Christianity is a total system that seeks to explain the entire world and that demands you participate in the system all the way or not at all.
0: So Reeves' notion of totalization is that Christianity correlates things that would have been independent in the Roman imaginary. There is no sense in the Roman imaginary that attending an Asclepiaeon to get healing obliges you to a particular metaphysics. Or the imperial cult means you ascribe to a particular set of ethical prescripts. Philosophy, ethics, what gods you worship, the sorts of social organizations you participate in are generally, and there are interesting exceptions to all of these things we recognize, but are generally sort of independent variables that Romans can mix and match, and your allegiance, adherence, practice in any one of those areas doesn't necessarily oblige you to another. And Christianity, Reeves points out, does. It imperializes your ethics, your metaphysics, your social organization, And obviously, what kinds of gods you are willing to worship. And maybe the best analogy I have for this, um, I mean, we can point out the way this continues to inform the Christian imaginary today. But it would be sort of like discovering that your friend's sect of Christianity or whatever religion they participate in also dictates what football team they're a fan of. Discovering that your neighbor is a Sikh doesn't tell you anything about whether or not they are a fan of the Minnesota Vikings or the Green Bay Packers. And for a Roman, I think discovering that your neighbor was a Christian and that somehow dictated what kinds of meals they were able to eat at and their sexual mores would have been sort of like that. Reeves, three
1: ideas here, exclusivity, homogeneity, and totalization, all work together as an interlocking system. Totalization, the idea that everything fits into one domain of the way things should be done, then ties into the idea that one should always do those right things the right way. And that sort of homogeneity, one should always do the right things the right way, think the right things and do the right things in the right way, then ties into the idea that if there's one right way to do things, you shouldn't do things the wrong way. So all three of these ideas fit together to form a distinctive Christian ideology that, again, wouldn't have made sense to contemporaries in the early Roman world.
0: So Jeremiah noted that Justin thinks Christianity is both a cult and a philosophy. And these would have been different categories, but he's saying that this this thing that ha- that dictates what kinds of gods we worship also is a philosophy. And one of Reeves' really interesting sort of illustrations of this is a polemic of Lactantius, where Lactantius says that the problem with paganism is that their cults lacked philosophy and their philosophy lacked cult. This is an uncharitable caricature. Uh, Surely we have people like Plutarch who are philosophizing cultic worship. And more interestingly, ancient philosophies did often give a way of life. But there is a distinctive that ancient people were aware of that Christianity is a sort of conceptual blending, Uh, that Christianity is colonizing different areas of ideology and social practice and saying, this one way of viewing the world is going to dictate everything else.
1: Lactantius is writing this in the early 4th century, at which point Christianity has largely won in the Roman Empire. But this distinctive point about Christianity, that it combines cult and philosophy, isn't new for Lactantius. He's rather giving us a really clear expression of an idea that goes back at least into the 2nd, and we would argue, and or argues, even into the 1st century.
0: So it's worth just noting that this too has its roots in Judaism, which dictates not only the God you worship, but also ethics and a way of life. And there are, of course, good philosophical analogs. We've already mentioned sort of the Platonic philosophies involve a way of life and an ethic as well as a metaphysics. And we have things like the Orphic Mysteries, which seem to make claims to other aspects of your life. So Reeves is very careful not to say that Christianity is just popping sui generis onto the scene, is the first person to ever blend metaphysics with cultic meals. But the point is that the degree to which Christianity is totalizing, alongside its exclusive claim and drive for homogeneity, together form an ideology that allows for the sort of takeover This is a point I think I got from Ehrman, but Ehrman notes that when an Apollo cult gets a convert, the Zeus cult down the street doesn't lose that adherent. The the convert just becomes a worshipper of both Apollo and Zeus. Whereas when Christianity gets a convert, not only does, does the Apollo cult lose a convert, but any ethical system, any social systems any political ideology that this person had also gets taken over.
1: This is in fact also a set of ideas that's recently been explored by Kevin Rowe in his book, One True Life, where he tries to align early Christianity or tries to compare early Christianity with other philosophical systems that place substantial or even total demands on how a person lives their life. But it's important to note here that Reeves probably wouldn't use the language of conversion here working off of Knox categories, he instead used the language of adhesion rather than conversion. One can be an adherent of Platonic philosophy and the local Mithraeum and the local imperial cult. But one converts to Christianity insofar as one adopts a total system, a total way of life, something that doesn't really make sense in traditional Roman religion, where one can be an adherent of multiple cults but not necessarily a convert to any of them. Insofar as conversion implies a radical transformation of one's way of life and one's allegiances that is exclusive of other sorts of commitments.
0: Really excellent point that actually the language of conversion is sort of an artifact of precisely what makes Christian ideology of religion distinctive.
1: So what are the implications of this totalizing ideology for the way that early Christianity actually works? One of the key points that Reeves demonstrates is that this idea of a singular and comprehensive way of life also leads to a distinctive sociology of early Christianity with specific kinds of authority structures and clear demarcations between in-group and out-group members and those who were beyond the pale, who were outside of this way of life.
0: So Paul becomes a Christian leader, who is presumably not only instructing his churches about the proper way to worship, but also is writing letters to Corinth, telling people who they can and can't sleep with, as well as where they can and cannot have supper. Paul is interested in regulating, it seems, just about every aspect of the life of the Corinthian Christians.
1: One of the things we really like about Reeves' article is the way in which he shows that the distinctive ideology of early Christianity actually develops out of Second Temple Judaism. Christianity is new in important ways, but it's not brand new and altogether discontinuous from what comes before. So here the question to answer is what makes Christianity different from Second Temple Judaism?
0: We've pointed out that within each of these things there are degrees. Jews tended to think of idolatry as human error, whereas Christians literally demonize uh, their opponents. And this turns into a strong emphasis on missionary activity if you listen to our paula Fredrickson episode you will know that there is a live debate over whether or not second temple jews engaged in proselytization i say yes but even so it seems that there was a drive in within christianity that was distinctive even in contrast to other second temple jews for evangelism and this surely is rooted in the christian conviction that other gods are demons and our god is the one true god who is coming back in wrath and this i think does set christianity apart in some ways from at least a handful of their jewish contemporaries
1: the other way in which christianity is distinct from judaism isn't something of ideology but it goes back to this question of sociology in time it comes to be the case that christian groups understand themselves as being distinct from other Second Temple Jews and understand themselves as no longer being part of Judaism. This is a longer conversation, something that is often discussed under the heading of the the parting of the ways. But it's important to note that it's possible to understand all of these distinctive features of early Christian ideology within a heading of Second Temple Judaism, but at the same time that as Christianity develops, Christians stop thinking of themselves as part of Judaism. One, one of the key points to be made here is that early Christians have this totalizing system that is understood as distinct from ancestral ethnicity or national identity or peoplehood. Um, again, all of those terms come with their own potential problems. Some early Christians imagine this as a third race. That is, there are Jews, there are pagans, and then there are Christians, and they imagine this Christian distinctiveness, the totalization, homogeneity, and exclusivity, as features of a new divinely constituted people group. Other Christians don't make this move, but nonetheless, while Second Temple Judaism is unified by an appeal to ancestral ethnicity and practices that are conceived of as ethnic traditions and traditional practices of a people group, Christians don't have that same sort of appeal. And what that means, among other things, is that people have to convert to Christianity. You can't be born into it in quite the same way.
0: It has to be said that Christianity has a lower barrier for entry.
1: At at the same time, though, it's important not to underestimate the bar for entry for the Christian way of life, which if one buys into it, as many Christian leaders would like people to involves a complete transformation of one's way of life where there is a complete system that demands that one follow it in terms of both belief, but also practice.
0: We're going to close up here by just rattling off a few of Reeves' important caveats. One is just emphasizing the reality of diversity that The striving for homogeneity does not imply actual homogeneity on the ground. Additionally, there is the circularity of leadership and homogeneity and totalization. That is, it's not simply having leaders that results in totalization. And it's not just totalization that results in having leaders. These things sort of mutually reinforce that you get more powerful leaders when you have a certain kind of ideology and having powerful leaders generates a increasingly totalizing ideology.
1: So does this make Christianity unique? Reeves' answer is yes, but in a qualified sense. Christianity is unique as a social movement, and the way this ideology, this interlocking ideology of totalization, homogeneity, and exclusivity works, does create a social structure and a movement that is unlike anything else in the Roman world. That being said, it's not as though Christianity invents this from whole cloth. Not only are there the substantial roots in Second Temple Judaism that we've discussed throughout this episode, but there are also broader analogies to other phenomena in the Roman world, particularly certain schools of philosophy.
0: So Reeves' primary thesis is that there is a distinctive ideology of religion that better accounts for the eventual triumph of Christianity than simple models of quantitative expansion. To quote a very helpful paragraph from Reeves' article, my chief goal has been simply to suggest that the number of people who professed adherence to the Christian God was ultimately not nearly so crucial a factor in Christian expansion as their participation in the fundamentally new social and conceptual system that this adherence entailed.
1: Reeves' point shouldn't be taken as undermining the reality that early Christians were in fact diverse in belief and practice. And one example that sort of pushes against the idea of dualistic exclusivity among groups that identified themselves as Christian is the fact that we do see quite a bit of cross-pollination as it were, or shared practice between things that we would generally classify as Christian and other, other mythological systems, other systems of belief and practice, And one of the places where we see this is in some of the so-called magical papyri, which largely come from late ancient Egypt, where Christian elements and other elements seem to exist side by side without explicit conflict of any sort. Christian theological themes and biblical material become part of the toolkit of supernatural power that one can draw upon for various actions of Healing and protection, to cast a love spell or to ward off disease, these sorts of things.
0: I think this is the most important critique of Reeves' article. Reeves' article is a very good characterization of the things that allowed Christianity to do what it did. And I think Reeves is correct that this sort of exclusivity and totalization is what facilitated Christianity's eventual triumph. Um, But it's important to note that not every Christian behaved this way. And Reeves himself would, of course, note this. There is, in fact, good evidence for Romans in the 2nd and 3rd century who incorporated the Christian god and Christian worship practices into other traditional practices. And we find the divine name and Christological language put right alongside the invocation of traditional Roman deities. I don't think recognizing either of these realities means rejecting the other totalization makes it possible for there to eventually be a christian emperor that doesn't mean there weren't a bunch of christians in egypt who were invoking christ and apollo in the same spell
1: thanks ian that's a really good point point. and again i think something that reeves would fully acknowledge at the same time it's not the point of this article he's giving a somewhat schematic sketch that helps us understand central features of christian ideology that lead to the success of a Christian movement. And he acknowledges that there are counterexamples and interesting caveats that can and should be made.
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you, Jeremiah. It is always an unmitigated delight to speak with you.
1: Thanks so much, Ian, for having me on.
0: And if you want to come talk to Jeremiah, uh, see his face, and ask him questions, Laura and I and Jeremiah will be hosting an after party tonight on YouTube you can tune in to the New Testament Review YouTube channel, and you can see the three of us chat and ask us any questions and pose any objections and start a fight with us in the live chat about the content of anything we said today.
1: Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Leaving her
0: behind I've seen brighter stars than you I've